You are listening to content from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. For more information, you can find us on the web at ChristOurHopeAnglican.org. And now, here's today's message. The opening lines of the Iliad are some of the most famous in all of literature. The translation by Robert Fagels begins like this. Rage. Goddess, sing the rage of Peleus' son Achilles. Murderous doomed that cost the Achaeans countless losses. Hurtling down to the house of death so many sturdy souls. Great fighters' souls but made their bodies carrion. Feast for the dogs and birds. And the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. Begin, muse, when the two first broke and clashed. Agamemnon, lord of men, and brilliant Achilles. These lines introduce us to the battles that are to come throughout this epic poem, the battle of wills between Agamemnon and Achilles and the clashing of men upon the plains outside the walls of Troy. The rage of Achilles and the spears of the Trojans will result in tragedy for the Greeks. But there is another battle that will truly seal their fate. There was a line from those Opening few lines, the will of Zeus was moving toward its end. In the Iliad, the fates of men are bound up with the will of the gods. And the battles that take place between flesh and blood are signs of the unseen battle that is waged between greater forces. There is Apollo and Athena, Hera and Aphrodite, Thetis and Poseidon. All of these Greek gods and goddesses seek to exert their will upon the war so that it might serve their own ends and bring them glory. None can act directly against the will of Zeus, the king of the gods, but they can persuade him or trick him into allowing them to meddle in the affairs of men so that they can make things end as they wish and desire. In the ancient world, battles between unseen gods were often invoked as a way to understand the capricious nature of fate. Why do some men come home from war to receive glory while others die on the battlefield? What twist of fate keeps these kings and lords of men from declaring peace before more good men die? Or outside of battle, why do the rains fall some years and not others? Why does one nation thrive while another slips into decay? The questions like these arise over and over again in the Bible, actually, particularly in the stories of the Old Testament, because the people of God were surrounded by nations that saw the world through a similar lens as the ancient Greeks. They saw and and thought of the world in terms of pantheons of gods competing against one another. And so when nation clashed with nation, the question wasn't just who's going to be victorious in this war, who has the mightier army. The question became who has the mightier God. When the rains dried up, they would go to a particular God who was supposed to be in charge of the rains and and beg them for rain. And that's why you see the, the clash between the people who are worshiping Baal in the Old Testament and those who are worshiping Yahweh. And the question becomes, who in, who actually controls the reins? Whose God is the one who is actually in charge of this moment? 
And the consistent witness of scriptures is that this idea that there are competing forces that are on equal terms and that they're sort of clashing together is what causes men to have their fate is wrong. Because there is one God who is the creator of all things. Everything that happens does so according to his divine will. The fundamental problem that humans face is not how to appease all of the gods in a pantheon, but how to restore our relationship with the one true God in whose image humanity was created. We heard this in the narrative of the creation and the fall that was read this morning. Adam was fashioned from the dust of the earth, and God breathed life into him. And as we begin the season of Lent, we are reminded that from dust you came and to dust you shall return. But that only captures half of the picture, because humans were formed from the dust, but they were also filled with God's breath. We are dust that was brought to life, both physical and spiritual life. The word breath occurs in many places throughout Scripture. Um, probably most of you, if you know anything of, of ancient Hebrew, might know of the word ruach. That is the word that often means spirit or wind or breath. But it is not the word that is used for breath here when it talks about the breath of God being breathed into Adam. Instead, the word is nesama, and it is only used in Scripture of humans and of God. This is the divine breath and it is not referred to in animals. When it talks about things that have breath upon the earth and it refers to animals, they are not the ones who have this nasama. It refers only to the breath of God and to the breath of human beings because we are in a unique place among all of creation. And it's impossible to fully unpack in just a few moments in a sermon where it's not my main focus, what it means to be made in the image of God, what it means that we have the breath of God in us. But at least one thing that it means that we see from the passage that was read, both in our Old Testament and in our New Testament reading from the book of Romans, is that our actions have spiritual as well as physical significance. Adam is told that if he eats of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that he will surely die. And this is not just a warning against the one poisonous fruit in all of creation. Everything else is good for you, this one's bad for you, stay away from it or you're going to get sick. It's a statement about the spiritual reality in which Adam participates. He was created to exist in both the spiritual and the physical worlds. He was created to be the image of God, his representative on earth. He was created to be the high priest of God, offering all of creation up to him so that it might be given up to God by one who is willing and loving and in a relationship with God. This is what Adam's purpose is here on the earth. He has authority and responsibility to offer the creation itself up to God because he is both creation and a spiritual being filled with the breath of God. But if he takes instead of gives, if he doubts instead of trusts, if he transgresses the divine law instead of acting in obedience, his choices will bring death to himself and to all of creation. 
Presumably, Adam passed this command along to his wife. She also had Nesama in her, the breath of God in her, and she was bound by the same rules. But Adam and Eve both believed the lies of the serpent. They took the fruit, and through their sin they brought death upon themselves and all of creation. Not just physical death, but spiritual death. A cutting off from God, who is truly the only source of life. A severing of that relationship they were supposed to have, that no amount of time or technology can heal. By acting as God's image, his representative upon earth, Adam was supposed to bring God's life to all of creation. Instead, he gave up his place as the royal steward and allowed an enemy to take his place, an enemy that has ravaged the earth and all of humanity ever since. Three times Paul names this enemy in our reading from Romans chapter 5. In verse 14, he says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. In verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned. In verse 21, sin reigned in death. The ancient Greeks were wrong about a pantheon of gods fighting their wars through human proxies. But they were not wrong about there being an unseen dimension to the battles that we face. We are still beings with the breath of God in us. And like our first father and mother, our actions have an impact on a spiritual level as well as the material. This is why Paul can write in his letter to the Ephesians that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. And in the passage that we read today, Paul speaks of sin and death as the chief enemies against which we are at war. Human sin has piled up year after year all the way from the moment that that first fruit was taken from the tree. And with each sin, the power of death is magnified. Death entered in through Adam, but it spread to all men because all sinned. We sent our best champions, the very best that we could produce, and said maybe they can conquer, maybe they can come through and bring us back to the restoration of that relationship with God. But they all fell Abraham and Moses and David, Noah, they sinned. When we pile up the records of God's people in the Old Testament stories, it ends up reading as a litany of death. This one came to the end of his life. He died and she died and he died and he died. And it's death and death and sin and sin and it piles up and sin and death reigned. I remind you again that this is not just a discussion of the fact that our years are limited to a span of time. When we talk about death here, we are not t- primarily talking about the fact that the human lifespan has a finite end. We are talking about the fact that we have, all of us, suffered a spiritual death. We are covered in sin. 
We are tainted by death. And when God revealed his law to his people so they could begin to understand the implications of sin and death, he had all of these laws and rules around holiness where if you come in contact with death, you're unclean. If you've touched something that even reminds you of death, you're unclean. If there's blood, you're unclean. If there's a corpse, a dead animal, you're unclean. You cannot come before a holy God with death on you. But all of us have death on us. And this is true even if we find some way to miraculously reverse aging or upload our consciousness into a machine. These are things that come in the news from time to time where they they come around in news cycles of like, maybe we found the secret. Maybe we found the way that we can prolong human life. We can be young again. We can stay stay forever. Our bodies won't decay. I don't think this is likely anyway. But it wouldn't take care of the real problem even if it could happen. Because the problem that we have, the death that we have, is not just, again, the ending of our bodies, but the separation from the one being who is life. God himself is life. This is the relationship that human beings were intended to have, and we lost it. God was merciful, and he showed his mercy over and over again. He showed his mercy to Adam and Eve through the way that he covered them with the skins of animals. The way that he continued to speak to them. Even in his judgment and his wrath against sin, he did so in a way that maintained a relationship with human beings even as we were separated and severed. But more than even that immediate action, they had a promise. And this promise was carried throughout all of the Old Testament. A promise that it would not be like this forever. A promise that God would set things right. A promise that he would restore our relationship to him and restore both our dignity and our glory. And that promise was realized in Jesus. When God the Son took on human flesh, Humanity had new hope. Even when they didn't realize it, even when they didn't recognize that the Lord of glory had come as a little babe, they had new hope because God himself had come to take on human flesh. And when he lived a life without sin, we had one man who was victorious over the power that had held all in its thrall. The story that we heard of Jesus and his temptation in the wilderness today is is amazing parallels with the story of Israel in the wilderness. And he is reenacting the story of Israel and the, the fact that they went through this time of wandering, this time in the desert, and they sinned, they fell, they did not trust God. But Jesus trusted God. He walked through that story and he was the one that went through it faithfully, the one who went through it with purity. And because of that, when he died on the cross and rose again, he conquered death. There was this moment we read at our reading on Ash Wednesday that he who knew no sin became sin for our behalf 
so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is this moment where the holiness of God in the very person of Jesus Christ and all of sin itself came together in a way that could not happen in any other way because we would have been destroyed. And the question is, what will happen when they come together and mix? And sin and death were destroyed. I think of that moment at the end of the first Matrix movie where like Neo jumps into to Anderson and there's this moment where like they come together and they mix and they're like one thing for a while and the very first time that you see it, there's this moment of suspense, like what's going to happen now that these two forces that have been opposed actually join and come together as one? Which one is going to come out and it is Jesus who comes out when sin and death come. And this was examined through his whole life, was preparing for this moment. When Jesus touched a man who was unclean, he did not become unclean. The man became clean. Jesus was holy in a way that brought holiness to people who were touched by sin and death. And that was the ultimate victory of the cross. God's holiness and sin and death mixed in the person of Jesus Christ and sin and death were destroyed forever. The good news is not just that this one man somehow escaped the judgment of God, that finally humanity had someone who was good enough, and that we kind of get a glimpse of hope, like some shows where you see one person escapes the prison and everybody else remains in the prison but is now hopeful because maybe, possibly, I could get out one day. The good news of the gospel is that all of us are able to participate in Jesus' victory. And this is at the heart of Paul's argument in Romans 5. Just as sin came into the world through one man, so would righteousness come into the world through one man. Just as Adam's fall meant that every generation after him would be tainted by sin, so would Christ's victory mean that every generation afterwards has the hope of being united with God, united with Christ in both his death and his resurrection, so that his righteousness is counted as our righteousness. Paul has just gotten through in the earlier part of Romans chapter 5 explaining that we take on this victory through faith because we cannot overcome sin and death on our own power. This is always the human temptation, always the thing that we want to try over and over again. Even those of us who know the gospel, over and over again, we start to think of sin as a, an, an opponent that we can have victory over in ourselves. If only I'm good enough. If only I have the right set of disciplines, the right set of practices. If only I do the right thing, I can, I can conquer the sin in my life. And we can't. But what we can do is trust in Jesus, to have faith in Him. And when we believe that He is our Lord, that He defeated sin and death, that He is the true source of life and He offers unity with us, then we participate in His victory. We are all counted guilty because of Adam's trespass, but in Christ we are counted righteous, breaking the hold of sin. We are given eternal life, breaking the hold of death. And our victory is not just some far-off thing that happens at the end of our life, that it now means that when I die, I can go to heaven. The victory is something that happens now, in the moment that you believe. If you believe in Jesus, if you have been baptized into his death, 
You are united with him in his death and resurrection. And the battle that you have with sin forever changes the nature and character of the fight that you have. Because apart from Jesus, you have no hope of defeating sin. You may want and desire desperately to be a better person, to stop the behaviors and the practices that you do not like, but no matter what you do and how disciplined you are, you cannot restore that fundamental break with God. But in Him, in Jesus, by faith, you have already been restored. You are justified in God's eyes. You are able once again to be connected and united with the source of holy life. All of our actions have spiritual repercussions. We are not beings that exist only purely in a material world. This world that God has created is good. The flesh that we have that is given to us by Him is good but it is not all that we are, and it is not the only world that we walk in. So, apart from Christ, when we sin, we increase the reign of death. We increase its reign in the whole world, and we increase its reign upon ourselves. And apart from Christ, we have no choice. That's all that we can do. But when we understand what Jesus has done, when we take on his victory for our own, now we have the opportunity that when we are struggling with our own individual sins, to participate in his victory, where the victories that we can have are not just temporary things, a bulwark holding off sin for a minute, we can have real victory over sin. And this means two things for us when we fight. It means that we need to keep in mind when we are struggling with sin that there is no such thing as a little sin. There's not the ones that are really bad and that kind of condemn you and the ones that are okay. Because all of this, sin in all of its forms is tied to death. Death reigns through sin. And no matter how small our sins may seem, they are still participating in this spiritual reality where when we sin against God, we bring death into our hearts and into the world. And so when we look at it on this cosmic scale and we look at what Christ has done, we are reminded that there is no sin that is small and it adds a weight to us when we see that. But at the very same time, we are reminded that our victory in Christ is sure. That our victory over sin does not depend upon you. Because this is the burden that we can have when we see the, the disaster and the, the darkness of sin. We can begin to think that the victory of sin over sin in my own life depends upon me. That somehow I have to, to somehow overcome it. And you can't but you can trust in the victory that Christ has already overcome. And this means both that you have forgiveness for sins, that there is truly a way that when you confess and repent, that the taint of sin and death does not cling to you, that your repentance is efficacious, it matters, it does something. 
So we repent from our sins. We confess our sins week in and week out. It's why we have this time of Lent and seek our hearts and we look at those sins that we've committed and we name them. We bring them to God because we, we want to bring them into the light of Christ's victory. But it also means genuinely that as Christians, that sin does not have a hold on you anymore in a way that it did before you knew Jesus. And this is something that I think is so hard for many of us to actually believe. You do not have to sin. That is the nature of the victory in Christ. You do not have to sin. It doesn't mean that you will not sin, but you do not have to sin. And that we actually can have victory in those areas of our life that seem like they are destroying us. Those things that we wish that we could give up and we feel like we could never possibly give them up. The things that are dark and secret that no one knows about. If you are addicted to pornography, you can have real and true victory in Christ. It feels like it has a hold on you. But bring it into the light. Name it. With me, with others. Know that your victory in Christ means that the shame that you feel in that is not the true thing about you. The victory in Christ means that that sin no longer has a hold on you. And you can give it up if you struggle with anger, impatience, comes up again and again, and you think, okay, I've got it this time. I've taken care of it. I've kind of figured out what I have to do, how to soothe myself. God can offer real, true deliverance. And again, The shame that you feel is not the truest thing about it because the victory that Christ has won is real. That sin no longer has a hold on you. It no longer allows the accuser to have power over you. Bring it to the light and to the light of Christ. Confess your sin to God and to other people. Whatever it might be, whatever the thing is that comes to your mind, you go, well, if only he knew about that. Sure, I believe that for other people, but not for myself. I don't believe that that is something that could be forgiven. I don't believe that I could be holy. Christ has won the victory. We walk in the victory that he has already won. And the whole point of that Romans 5 passage is that as incredibly huge as this enemy of death is, as sure as his reign seemed, as certain as sin feels for all of humanity, the grace of God that is given to us in Jesus Christ our Lord is so much greater. The victory that was won dwarfs the enemy that we face. He has nothing against us. The accuser has nothing that he can hold against us because in Christ Jesus, we are truly set free. Whatever you see in yourself 
as insufficient, unable to live up to the standard that God sets, Jesus Christ has held that standard and He offers that to you by faith. And He offers freedom from your sins. The people of God, this is what we have to remember. This is the good news that we have in Jesus Christ. We understand what is the real problem of this world. What are the real spiritual forces that are destroying people? And we have good news, an answer to that that is given to us. A gift that is given to us. Hold on to this good news for yourself and carry this good news out to others because I promise that there are so many people, even if they hate the word sin, they are in its thrall. And if you do not bring to them the good news of the freedom that they can have in Jesus Christ, you're like the prisoner who got free and refuses to go back and help his comrades. There is real freedom here, and if we believe in that real freedom, it will motivate us to carry the good news, to proclaim the good news to others. So as we continue through this Lenten season, as we continue in confession and repentance, let it bring to mind the infinite mercy of God, the magnitude of His goodness, the incredible gift of grace that He has given, the victory that Christ has won for us. And let us live and walk in that grace is the only source of life. Let's cling to it. This sermon is an audio ministry from Christ Our Hope Anglican Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. If you are in the area and would like to learn more about how you can worship with us in person or online, please visit us on the web at www.christourhopeanglican.org.